Kluge, noun, disparaging term for genetically unmodified human being. See also Uber. Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. I'm Ethan Maestri, and joining me is Ryan Mazzacco. Ryan, Mm -hmm. are you in pain? Oh, it's nothing. I'm fine. Do you need something? Well, do you have, like, maybe some Aleve or some some Dones pills? Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I might have some in the cabinet. Uh, What's what's the problem, though, man? Uh, I don't want to bother you. It's it's my back. Really? Yeah. What what happened? It's not, you know, it's just my back is kind of hurting from from carrying the weight of this show for the last three months. Well, if you weren't such a kludge, it wouldn't be such a burden for you. Uber. All right, well, maybe we can settle this later. In any case, this is episode 13, Music of a Distant Drum. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. So getting into this, I had a little bit of trivia. That I wanted to share with you. Great. Uh, if it's not too much of a burden for you. No, 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 no. Okay. It's, it's great. <laughs> we'll get into this then. Um, like I said, episode number 13, written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, the show's creator. All right. So we're going to revisit a, a little bit of his storytelling uh, for the continuation of this series. Now, the title itself, Music of a Distant Drum, appears to be from the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. And it's a, a Persian poem. Um, music of a distant drum also is referred to as the rumble or the sound of a distant drum and indicates the lure or the, uh, of a call to arms. And so that's what that's, that's insinuating there. So there's where our title comes from in this. We had several actors uh, that are guest starring in this episode. We had Yvain and that was played by Linnea Sharples and she has a, a broad uh, background as a character actress in several sci-fi series, uh, from Millennium to Stargate SG-1, Outer Limits, Battlestar Galactica, and even uh, the uh, prequel to Battlestar Galactica that came a little bit later, uh, Caprica. Hmm. And so she's uh, not new to the sci-fi genre by mm-hmm. any means in television. And then we had Brayon. And that was played by Noel Fisher. And he was about 16 years old at the time that this was recorded. And it's interesting because he goes on to have many character roles in television, mainly Canadian uh, television. But he's done a lot of U.S. television as well. But many of you uh, may recognize him from the Twilight series as he played Vladimir in the second installment Hmm. of the, uh, the Twilight franchise. And then, interesting, this one's for you, Ryan. I'm ready. He plays the voice of Michelangelo in the latest (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. (laughs) Really? That was this actor, Noel Fisher. So, yeah. So, uh, interesting to see him and and see how his career has advanced uh, since his appearance in 2001 in in this episode, Music of a Distant Drum. Then we had Arjun, that was played by Nels Lennerson, and then uh, Hanno, 
played by Alex Zahara. And both of these characters uh, did a lot of character roles in uh, television throughout the late 90s and throughout the 2000s as well. Uh, doing anything from Stargate SG-1 again for the both of them, and then uh, even uh, Battlestar Galactica there for uh, Alex Zahara showing up in an episode there. So yeah, these two guys fit in very well. Uh, I, I believe Arjun played the uh, the lead Nietzschean mm-hmm. in, in opposition to uh, to Tyr in this episode, and then Hanno played the 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 bad human, right? Uh, the kludge, the scumbag, the scumbag. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, that was their roles in this uh, episode, and good to see these guest guest actors uh, in this episode. Now, this particular show won the 2001 Leo Award for best musical score of a dramatic series, and that went to the uh, the show's uh, music uh, creator, to Matthew McCauley. Hmm. So yeah, um, award winning show. That mm-hmm. we're reviewing here, and obviously they are on set in British Columbia. I wasn't able. I tried to find where they were at, mm-hmm. and I could not find any references online as to the location of the shooting of this episode. But obviously, it's it's no doubt somewhere near Vancouver, mm-hmm. in in the woods out there. So that's what I've got for trivia, Ryan. Why don't you tell us about this episode, "Music of a Distant Drum"? Sure thing. The episode opens on the planet Midden, where Yvain and her stepson, Brian, work fishing nets. They small talk about the pros and cons of moving somewhere else, but the conversation turns to their, especially Brian's, hatred for the dragons. Brian wants to kill them all, and to avenge the death of his father. Just then, they hear a ship fall from the sky and crash land in the nearby wooded mountains. Brian fears its dragons, and says they should just let whoever it is die. Yvain takes the high road and goes to help. She finds the wrecked ship, the Maru, and its only occupant, an amnesic Tyr Anasazi. Back at their cottage, Yvain tends to Tyr and offers to contact the dragons. What are dragons, anyway? She explains that this is their little nickname for the Drago Katzoff. Tyr demands she not tell them. On the Andromeda, Dylan and Becca try to interpret Becca's dream about King Arthur and Guinevere and how it relates to using the Andromeda for profit. Dylan says no-go, as they have to find Tyr and then have a meeting with the Than. Back on the planet, Tyr is napping when Brian charges a blaster aimed at his head. Tyr awakes and skillfully disarms the boy, and memories flash back to him that he has a beef with the Drago Katzoff himself. Yvain takes the opportunity to try to get to know their visitor a little better. Since they don't know his name, she decides to call him Nemo. Yvain and Tyr go back to the Maru, where they try to figure out who he is and what he's doing. He sees a large container and knows that it's important for some reason. It has a three-stage lock, key, fingerprint, and voice code. He has the key, and his fingerprint works, but giving the incorrect voice code will trigger a self-destruct sequence so he aborts. On the way back to the cottage, they hear Brian being attacked and bullied. Yvain tells Tyr to stay out of it and goes to help him alone. In the cottage, three men are trying to steal whatever they can from Yvain and Brian. It's apparent that this is the norm here. As Hanno, the leader, puts Yvain in a particularly compromising situation, in comes Tyr to the rescue. Hanno orders him to drop his weapons, which he does, and he goes to his knees. He then starts to have flashbacks that maybe he's really good at fighting and stuff. This new memory prompts him to spring into action. 
Tyr gets in a fight and defeats the would-be raiders, only letting Hanno live at Yvain's request. Back on the Maru, Tyr figures out that he and the Maru were attacked by nanobots designed to scramble electrical systems, both mechanical and biological, which explains his amnesia. Fortunately, as a Nietzschean, his immune system is superior, and he has his own nanobots, which will repair the damage, eventually. My guess is probably at the most opportune time in the episode. Outside on the shore, Yuvain gives some much-needed exposition. They live as slaves to the dragons. They once attempted a revolt and won the battle, killing the entire dragon garrison. But the victory was short-lived, as they came back the next day and nuked the entire city. She escaped as the lone survivor. She later met Larone, Brian's father. The dragons increased the tribute levels, and when the fishermen stopped paying in protest, the dragons killed every tenth male, including Larone. Just then, dragons land on the planet, which spells certain trouble. Back on the Maru, Tyr tries to get his stuff together when a couple Nietzscheans break in. Tyr hides and ambushes them, defeating them both. He lets the one, Arjun, live and forces him to carry the crate on his back as they trek through the woods. Back on the Maru, Becca discovers that Tyr went to the Dragocatsoff homeworld. In the woods, Arjun asks Tyr if he is Kodiak Pride. He seems to have a better idea of what he is carrying than Tyr does and says that it was an honor as Tyr relieves him of his burden. Tyr takes a crate to a cave as memories start to flood him about Kodiak Pride and remains of Drago Musevni, once entrusted to them, but stolen by the Drago Kassov. He opens the crate to find the preserved, mummified remains of Drago Musevni, the progenitor, the father of all Nietzscheans. As Tyr tries to make his way back through the woods, he encounters the Nietzschean search party, but he has already set up some Ewok-style booby traps, and when cornered by Arjun, jumps off a cliff and disappears into the water below. Back on the Andromeda, Becca has hacked into the Drift's computer to find, among other things, Tyr's departure route. Back on the planet, Yvine hits the water in her boat and searches for Tyr, as he does his best hippopotamus impression. Once he sees it's her, he climbs into the boat. As they approach the cottage, Yvine goes inside and Brian calls for Nemo, that's what they're calling Tyr, to come inside quickly. It's a trap! Hanno and his goons have turned him into the dragons for the bounty. But why pay someone when you can just shoot them? As Arjun demonstrates on Hanno. As Arjun threatens to kill Brayan, Tyr shows his softer side and pleads for their lives. Here's the deal. Take the dragons to the crate, and the humans live. As they make their way into the caves, Tyr gets into a fight. He also rigged the cave with explosives to give him an edge. Just when it seems Arjun is about to get the best of Tyr... Wait for it. Ah, there it is. Flashbacks of the most important kind. He remembers that he is Tyr Anasazi of Kodiak Pride, and he is trained to kick butt, which he does. The victory is only temporary, as more Nietzschean support blasts through the blocked entrance, and order nerve gas pumped in. It's all over for Tyr and his friends. Oh, except that Dylan and Becca just arrive in time, and the Nietzschean troop folds like a cheap tent. Back in the cottage... Tyr takes one more look at Drago's remains and then locks the crate back up. He offers for Yuvine and Brayan to come with them, which she declines and wishes him well. The three heroes board the Maru and take off into the sky. The end. You know, Ryan, it's a real shame 
that this was recorded in 2001, just one, or, or maybe, is it two, one or two years before Finding Nemo came out? <laughs> because then it would have been not the classical literature that would have influenced uh, Yvain's mm-hmm. um, naming of Tyr. Uh, because Nemo somehow doesn't seem appropriate now, does it? Could have called him Dory. <laughs> Think about it. I was trying to figure out which one of these characters was Dory. <laughs> and you know what the thing is? Actually, Tear fits both descriptions. Yeah. Because he couldn't remember anything. A- and he was lost. Yeah. 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 So. Well, you, you can, can tell we both have children, don't you? Yeah, we you? do. It, you know, <laughs> the sequel for Finding Nemo is coming up. It's Finding Dory. There you go. So, <laughs> so, so, three thousand years in the future. Somehow, I f- I feel that the classical literature wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. Pop culture would have made sure that Finding Nemo or Finding Dory mm-hmm. would have influenced the story a little bit differently. I think. Yeah. <laughs> or not. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this. What are some of the other other observations that we that we noticed about this? I've got another one. Uh, Midden. Mm-hmm. Great little planet. Seems like nice enough folk, at least out in the, you know, the fishmongers seem sure, yeah. pretty nice. Um, but get out in the woods, and were those not some funky monkey sounds? Yes. <laughs> in the woods. Yes, I, I actually listened to this episode with headphones on, uh-huh. and it was, I, I'm, I think it's cool that they've got the same kind of monkeys we have here. Exactly. Yeah. They must have imported them. Uh, yeah. That must be Probably. it. No, I I thought that was quite hilarious. It, you, the whole episode is actually really well, and then all of a sudden, it's like, where the heck are these monkeys coming from? You know, this isn't the rainforest. You yeah. know, it's deciduous rainforest, I guess. Uh, so I suppose they could live there, but I don't know. My just my observation: they're they're not one. monkeys that are native to Vancouver, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And maybe that's why they put that in there. It's yeah. got to be something besides. You know, Vancouver, the Pacific Shoreline. Vancouver Monkeys. <laughs> yeah. What, are there any Vancouver Monkeys? I don't know, but that's a great band title. Ooh, yeah. Vancouver Monkeys. Put a pin in that. All right. That's nope. ours. You can't take that, folks. <laughs> Unless you really like the show and you give us credit. They, then then it's yours. So, um, here's a really great way to save money when you're making a TV show. Especially on location, which Robert Hewitt Wolf told us that it, it actually costs more money to film on location than a set that's already right. built, which makes sense. Yeah. But a good way to save money um, is to reuse the same shots yeah. and not even pretend like you're not. <laughs> yeah. The 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 the, the, sh- coming the down. shot with with tears with it coming down in the Maru and then the Nietzschean ship. I'm pretty sure though that's the exact same shot. I thought the same thing because they make it a point. The, the the kid Brayon mm-hmm. makes it a point, or or is it is it Yvain? One of them makes them makes mention of the fact that oh, this isn't going anywhere near the spaceport where they normally come down. Yes, <laughs> and then when you see it the second time, it's the same shot. Yeah. Oh, it's headed for the spaceport. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how can you tell the difference? <laughs> they must have a different perspective than where the camera was set up. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, um, but I get you know yeah. why spend the money on two shots when one can suffice, right? Can suffice. Yeah, and you know I kind of wondered if, if if it hadn't been for the fact that the, uh, the 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 tail was going the opposite direction, I kind of thought that the Maru leaving was probably the same <laughs> shot too. Yeah, 
And, yeah. you know, maybe it all was the same shot, but they, they did do a little bit of CGI just for the tail. Yeah. To make it go one way and then the other way on the on the exit. I can see where they, yeah, where that, that would be the way to engineer that. Mm-hmm. It's not that we don't like this show. It's just <laughs> we have to point those things out because it's it's fun. It is fun. <laughs> it is. Um, so here, I, I think Tear may possibly have a, a future in stand-up comedy impressions, perhaps. Because mm-hmm. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed his Richard Dreyfus impression. <laughs> Do you know the scene I'm talking about? <laughs> they walk into the room. They see the casket. It may as well have been a pile of mashed potatoes in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind because (laughs) this is important. (laughs) I mean, his inflection was perfect for that scene. (laughs) This is important. (laughs) Anyway, uh, if you don't get the reference, uh, Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. No, it took me a minute because I haven't seen the movie in probably about six months. Right, right. You you were kind of giving me an odd look. But I mean, Uh I love that movie. And so when he said that, yeah. they, I mean, instantly, yeah. you know, that was that was the neuron that fired. Yeah. No, when you explained it, I got it. Yeah. But did you? There was kind of some Lion King stuff going on in this episode. Did you? Did you pick up on any of that? No, I didn't. Okay, well, me. Well, I thought Yvain and and Brian kind of had a little bit of a Timon and Pumbaa thing going on. It's a lion. Lions eat guys like us. Oh, but not if he's on our side. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I see it. I see yeah. it. Yeah, I don't know. It, Not a bad deal. It may be a, a bit of a stretch, but I mean that my mind went there immediately. Okay, so it wasn't a stretch for me. And as we already have mentioned, we have small children, so these are this is the kind. This of This is the that, filter that we look at these things through. Yeah. So obviously, yeah. yeah. No, I, I see that, and I I can appreciate that very much. I feel like somehow you, you're you're honing in on it. I'm seeing it. This episode had so many references to other movies. Whether it was intentional or not, and I, I think it, I think not. Mm-hmm. I think they were legitimately trying to do something on their own, and I think they did a great job at, mm-hmm. at telling a, a a story, a good story. But here again, there were so many things, uh, tangibles that that linked, or at least in my mind, to other movies. And so we have a, a total Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid moment when Tear said well he's looking at the the, the Nietzschean and he says I, I said I'd kill you I just didn't say when and then he immediately turns <laughs> and jumps off the cliff and that was totally a Butch Cassidy Sundance Kid mm-hmm. moment that's what I thought of mm-hmm. anyway when I saw that I thought it was pretty cool I thought there was also an Ace Ventura moment when nature calls okay yeah when uh, Ace Ventura was uh, showing how he was a master of disguise and uh, he was hiding amongst many of the African animals, one of them being the hippos. Yes. <laughs> Coming out of the water there. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned that in your in your rundown. I thought that was humorous because, yeah, <laughs> I can see that. That was a great hippo impression. Yeah. Tear, man, I tell you what, this guy, I mean, not only is he uber mm-hmm. genetically modified, and we're going to... We're definitely getting into the whole nanobot thing. Okay. Because this is a whole new dimension mm-hmm. to what the Nietzscheans are capable of. Well, we don't know. If, is it a Nietzschean thing or is it a – we'll get to it in a moment. Yeah, we'll talk about it. But uh, absolutely, uh, this guy is uh, – uh, what was that movie by uh, Dana Carvey? Master of Disguise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is a, He is the, the Andromeda series Master of Disguise so far. We know that he is, he is ruthless. He is big and bad. He is tough. Unless he has amnesia. Then he's a big teddy bear. Yes. 
Yeah. No, I and you totally stomped all over one of my things we've learned about tier okay. things. Uh, and you said it in, in your summary. He's getting in touch with his softer side. Mm-hmm. But you have to remove his previous life yeah. <laughs> in order to, to be able to see that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. He is a teddy bear at heart, isn't he? Yeah, and even when he gets it, well, I'll save that. Well, I think you were about to get into it. Oh, okay. And, and that was my last observation here is once it does come flooding back to him, he becomes a very angry rage monster. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because as the line goes, I am Tyr Anasazi, and he goes through his whole lineage there. Mm-hmm. And then Crack dispatches oh. his foe. Oh, man, yeah. And that was impressive. Yeah. Uh, brutal, mm-hmm. to say the least. Wow. Mm-hmm. I would not want to be getting... <laughs> I would not want to be around him when he's drunk. Yeah. I would put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. No. No. And we we only thought he was angry most of the time. Mm-hmm. Apparently not. Yeah. And But you know what? Even after he gets all of that back, he's still, you know, at the end, he's there with, with Yvaine, very soft towards her. Right. Yeah. So that's... That's just kind of a different look at Tyr. And I, and I think this is more of what we're going to get into mm-hmm. our, in our discussion of what we've learned about our characters. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of... It, it's deep. There's a lot here mm-hmm. to discuss. So, yeah. yeah, we'll definitely get into that. I got another thing about the... Just about the Nietzscheans in general. Okay. Uh, we've said this before in past shows that we know that the Nietzscheans are, are supposed to be genetically superior mm-hmm. in every way to humans. And again... When compared to Tyr, I'm just not seeing it. Nietzscheans are supposed to have this never-say-die attitude. You know, as long as they are are living, they can find a way to succeed in whatever it is they're doing. And a lot of times, the only thing they're trying to do is just live. And that's just get to get to the next step. Arjun totally fails at this. <laughs> he totally whiffed on this because he he's carrying this huge crate and then sure it's it's tough, okay? He's having a hard time. Of course he's not nearly as strong of a Nietzschean as someone like Tyr, but we're given to believe that this is I don't know if he's the alpha male in this particular group, but he is definitely a higher up. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, he's got a wife, at least one. We know he, cause he has the armband. Yeah. So we know he's married, which is huge. Okay. For yeah. the Nietzscheans. He, he gets to the point where he's like, just kill me now. <laughs> Get it over with. Come on. That is so not Nietzschean. No. No, I not. mean, we know that Nietzscheans do not commit suicide, which that would not necessarily be suicide, but but they definitely don't in any way just give their lives over. Here's the thing, though, and this is this is tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. but I mean, here's the observation about Nietzscheans, and if we go back and think about it, I I, I think I'm spot on here. Uh, Nietzscheans that are still looking for a mate, still looking to establish themselves, you know, they're buff, they work out. They keep themselves in shape, but after they get married, after they get the uh, mm-hmm. the old armband there, uh, that's that's like the ring around our fingers. Okay, uh, what happens to you after that point? Well, you start to bulge around the middle. A that's little right. Bit. Yeah. It's it's not as big a deal to to demonstrate your masculinity and and to keep yourself in shape and what you kind of let yourself go. Is this what happened to Arjun? Yeah. <laughs> 
I can see where you're going with that. My counter argument to that would be that um, in our society, generally speaking, we are in monogamous relationships. Mm-hmm. The Nietzscheans are not. They can take as many wives as they can get. Yeah. So, and, and any wife that they get, that's just another chance to pass on their genes. Right. And and that is the most important thing to a Nietzschean. So you would, I don't know, I would think that just because they get married, you know. But with humans, I totally get it. Right. <laughs> Kluges. Right. With Kluges, Kluges yeah. yeah. And you know, it's interesting that, that Arjun was having such a hard time carrying that. And this was something, that maybe you caught this, because I wasn't quite clear on what happened. We see Arjun trying to carry this thing, and it's just killing him. It's it's breaking his back. He's ready to die. Yeah. At the end of the show, Tyr comes just trotting along with it on his back. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost effortless. And Okay, maybe I missed that, but it, it did seem like he struggled a little bit. No, not enough. Okay, but the thing was, I'm I'm wondering if if there's something in there that they didn't show, because at the be- when when he first goes into the Maru to try to get the 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 crate, is that what we're going to call it? The crate, the crate, the <laughs> casket. Yeah, let's call it a casket. All right, let's, he, be, let's when, be. When he tries, when he goes in there and try to get the casket, he's he's working with um, the AG field. And the Mario is telling him that the AG field isn't working. Right. And he Anti-gravity says, and, and then is he what says, we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so then he says, okay, fine, I'll do it myself. Right. Okay, well, it's right about that time that the Nietzscheans board the Maru. Yeah. So maybe sometime after, after Arjun was relieved of his duties, that maybe Tyr fixed the AG field? Well, let's think about it. The AG field wouldn't activate because he couldn't release the safeties or the, the security measures attached to the to the casket, right? Is that what... That's how I'm remembering it. That's how I saw it anyway. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Because he doesn't actually release the security measures until he's in the cavern with it. Right. So he had to carry that thing. Yeah. And it looked like it looked like he kind of struggled with it in the cave, setting it down. It okay. was heavy. Okay. Which, considering what's inside, mm-hmm. uh, how much of those remains weigh? Do you think maybe uh, thirty pounds? I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say maybe sixty at the most. <clears throat> at most, yeah. yeah. And then uh, it's it's a metal casket. Mm, well, a lot of electronics on board and whatnot. Because mm-hmm. obviously, three thousand years in the future, we haven't figured out that whole bulky electronics thing. Because mm-hmm. yeah. we still got that going on, apparently. Right. So yeah, you, you figure somewhere between two hundred, two fifty, maybe, is what he's carrying around. Well, I mean, unless they weighed it down um, on purpose, and that's why the AG field. If you're if you're correct in how you remember this, then if the AG field can only be activated once the, all of the security protocol has been met. Maybe that's just another way to deter thieves. The weight? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. It seems like, though, if you've got a really determined Nietzschean, yeah. it's not going to be as big an issue. Well, it wasn't. Tyr got it. True. Yeah. And uh, uh, and they sent two in. You know, mm-hmm. two people can carry a load a lot easier. Yeah. Maybe that was the thinking in Maybe. sending two in. Of course, Tyr didn't allow that to uh, pan out. Exactly. Well, no, he? he wouldn't do that. Because he's a better Nietzschean. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about the Drago Katzoff. 
Okay. Okay. So we've established that they rule over this planet here mm-hmm. that Tyr has crash landed on, Midden. Um, and it is one of their slave worlds. Right. Or tribute worlds. Tribute. Mm-hmm. Did she say tributary or tribute worlds? Uh, well, they said that they have to pay tributes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so it's a tribute world. Uh, obviously, they're slaves on this planet, uh, ruled over by the Dragokasovs. Deer makes the observation that these worlds support the Dragokasovs and that they have become uh, dependent right. on them and that without them, they would collapse. Mm-hmm. So is this is this indicative of a just a... Uh, a society that's rotting are, are the Nietzscheans, are they, are they becoming complacent and now kind of rotting from the inside because of the way they treat these types of uh, slave worlds or tribute worlds? I mean, is that something that we can draw from this, that, well, the, that this particular family is, has become comfortable with their way of living? Well, I, throughout history, I think anytime you have um, a society that uses slave labor, you know, of course, they're they're going to they're going to use that, and they're going to use it to the full. They're going to use it to the max, and then it gets to a point where when when you get to a point where all you have is slave labor, you don't have to pay for labor. Um, I mean, it just gets so easy for them. Yeah, you know, and you think about uh, the situation here in the United States uh, about 150 years ago. Or and and before that, you know, the the reason that the southern states wanted to keep slavery so badly was because their they their lives depended on it. Yeah, they had gotten to that point. They had gotten to the same point where the Drago Katzoff are. Mm-hmm. They were dependent on slavery. Right. It wasn't just a matter of it sure makes things a whole lot easier for us. Uh, their whole way of life was going to be crashing down. Yeah. And so that's why they were so opposed to uh, to the abolition of, of slavery. Um, and, and I use that example because it's the one I know the most. I, I know the most about American history than any other. Um, but we can – I think we can, we can assume that that's what happens in any society – that uses slave labor. And, you know, Tyr just spells it right out. This is what's happening to them now. Yeah, and, and getting down to it, I think this is really where we learn something about Tyr that's important. Is It's not just simply the fact that the Drago Katsov betrayed his family. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's the fact that in the aftermath of that, Tyr has watched what has happened to the society that took over, the family, the pride that took over. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he can't abide it. Mm-hmm. It's it's more than just you killed my pride. It's you killed my pride. You established yourselves as the leadership, the dominant pride, and look what you've done with it. Mm-hmm. Look at these people. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there is that softer side of tear that can't. He's not going to treat these people. You know, the, these this this family that he's run into. He's not going to treat them the same way that most Nietzscheans, or at least Drago Katzov Nietzscheans, will treat mm-hmm. the common people. And I think this really kind of teaches us something about Tyr himself. You know, yeah, he's he's calling out the Drago Katsov and their complacency and the fact that they can't stand on their own because they have become so complacent and dependent on slave labor and mm-hmm. things of that nature. Uh, I, I think this it helps to put Tyr on a in a I don't know more of an elevated position. I mm-hmm. think and it makes us like him better as a mm-hmm. character. And that's something that I kind of observed about this. And it's something that. <clears throat> And it's something that it makes me kind of wonder about uh, the Nietzscheans as a whole, 
because Tyr would have to have the freedom of speech to be able to to say this. Yeah. And for Tyr to have the freedom of speech, that would mean that the Kodiak Pride would have to have the freedom of speech because he's basically speaking on behalf of his pride. If if the Kodiak Pride was doing the same thing, then Arjun would have just said, um, "Hi, I'm Kettle. Have we met?" <laughs> True. You know, absolutely. But but I mean, what else do we we don't we don't know a whole lot about many more uh, Nietzschean prides. We've we've met we've met Tyr, who represents the Kodiak. We've met the uh, the Orca Pride. Yeah, which they're. They space were, pirates. Yeah, I mean they were they were mean and ruthless. I don't recall seeing any evidence of them using uh, slave labor, right, or enslaving entire worlds. Right. They didn't have any Than on board that they were forcing to work for them. Yeah, that's who they seemed like they interacted the most with. Right. Um, we remember Harper in one episode. He was talking about uh, if he had to choose between. Um, being invaded by Nietzscheans or Magog, that he would rather have the Nietzsche, uh, he would rather have the Magog. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then again, is Harper talking about all Nietzscheans, or is he is he is he just putting a, a is he just labeling yeah, yeah is he just labeling them all as just being evil is it, because it was the Drago Katzoff that was that had come down and invaded Earth. You know, yeah. I guess we don't really know what pride it was. You know, it, 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 it tear really seems to indicate that this is this is uh, something indicative, yeah, of these prides. Mm-hmm. However or, many there are, yeah, maybe not all of them, or of, or specifically of the Drago Katzoff. So. And allies, because mm-hmm. we don't know that it wasn't just the Drago Katzoff. There were others involved, right. in the downfall of Kodiak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there could be others out there that are. In the same boat with the Drago Katzoff. So, again, about Tyr, uh, something else we learned about him. Nanobots. Yeah. So, obviously, this amnesia is caused by an attack on his body mm-hmm. by uh, ex- nanobots from outside that were either injected in the air or injected direct. We don't we don't get any exposition on that. Yeah, I got to think they're airborne because they're yeah, in the ship, so. too. Yeah. So, um, he's infected with those. They're doing damage to him. But he has defensive nanobots in his bloodstream, apparently, mm-hmm. that uh, are combating that and fixing the damage. Now, so is he just genetically superior? Or is he, in some small way, pun intended, mm-hmm. is he somehow cybernetic? Cybernetically augmented? Can we class him as such? Hmm. I don't know. I I think cybernetic... I. To me, and you know, maybe I'm just not understanding it correctly, but to me, when I think of that, I think more of, uh, it's got to be more in his core of being cyborg. Uh, All right, so so let's go outside of of this universe. So mm -hmm. so the the gold standard for cybernetic. Robocop. Well, I was thinking Borg. Oh, oh, right. (laughs) I was going Star Trek. I was going that direction. Sorry, sorry. Um, So, or or, uh, uh, Lobot from Star Wars, perhaps. Okay, Mm -hmm. Okay. yeah, you have some sort of apparatus attached Mm -hmm. to you that indicates you've got machinery on board, Mm -hmm. right? Is that the definition, though? I mean, the biggest thing with, as we learn from, if you want to subscribe to it, Voyager, Star Mm -hmm. Trek Voyager, the biggest thing that made a Borg 
Borg was the nanotechnology floating around inside of them in their bloodstream and things like that. Okay. Essentially, that's what Tyr's got floating around inside of him. Mm-hmm. The nanobots. Defensive nanobots. Well... But I, I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I would almost classify him as being genetically modified and cybernetically enhanced. Yeah, I mean, the thing he talks about, since he's a Nietzschean, that he's bioengineered to be superior. His immune system is superior. Yeah. And he says, and I also have defensive nanobots. Okay, that's a good point. So he he doesn't say, as a Nietzschean, I have defensive nanobots. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, maybe this is an option that's open to anybody. Yeah. So it's not necessarily across the board. Yeah. The Nietzscheans aren't passing these along. I mean, we know that Trance uses nanobots in MedDeck all the time. Uh, nanobots fix everything, as far as we can tell. You know, when the, the Andromeda's hull gets blasted through in one episode, what's there to fix it? It's nanobots. Um, anything that goes wrong, nanobots are fixing uh, yeah, everything. Yeah, I'm starting to see the pattern in this Andromeda universe. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's not the force. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. Uh, it, it, it's not some mystical science. You know, it's nanobots, right? Nan- well, nanobots, fixed yeah. It. <laughs> nano, nano. <laughs> Maybe that's all it was about on Mork and Mindy. You know, they were just nanos. <laughs> and you, the listener, if you get the Mork and Mindy reference, kudos to you for that. <laughs> That's a ways back. Well, the fact that I made one, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's before my time, but... Well, okay. So, yeah, so we've learned a little bit more about Tyr. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely a Tyr episode, because, I mean, as as we're going to discuss now, mm-hmm. uh, Tyr's softer side. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you take away his experiences and his memories of who he is and where he's been and what he's been doing. Uh, it, it Like you alluded to before, earlier... He's a bit of a softy at heart, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, in the way he dealt with um, Yvain. Mm-hmm. And Brayon, even. Brayon sticks a gun in his face. Mm-hmm. And any other time, Tyr would have reacted by cracking his neck mm-hmm. or skull or whatever. It, at least that's the impression that you get. Mm-hmm. But no, he, he, he disarms him and then explains to him, you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm going to be nice to you. Right. And this just doesn't seem like the Tyr... That growls <laughs> and is is very physical, yeah, and and kills androids to Wagner playing in the background and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, this is this is a, a softer tier, and and I think it's I like it. I like seeing mm-hmm. even at that though, it does seem like he growled more in this episode than we've seen him growl a couple before. of times. But they were they were kind of low key. Okay, they yeah, low key. Yeah, <laughs> you strip away all of that from Tyr, so he doesn't really know who he is. Uh, and then when he gets it back, I, I was kind of expecting him to, uh, to, to to quote Star Trek V, I need my pain. It's an identifier. <laughs> Good call. Good call. I didn't see that one coming. Oh, well. But yeah, yeah that, that, no, absolutely. That's You're, you're spot on with that. <laughs> yeah, so with, with Tyr... Uh, you, you take away the pain. Mm-hmm. He, he's not so aggressive. Yeah. Not so bad. Put the pain back in and he'll snap your spine. Yeah. 
or neck or whatever. Snap your neck from below your shoulders. I don't know how he did that. That was an amazing move. <laughs> it was an incredible move. Yeah. Yeah. It was a backcracker or something. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting, uh, interesting word that comes up. We've already used it. Uh, a time or two. Yeah, a time or two. But uh, By the way, it, I didn't really mean it. I know. I know it. I didn't mean it about me carrying the show either. It's it's a it's a it's a fifty fifty thing. But we come across a uh, sixty forty. <laughs> sixty forty. <laughs> Agree to disagree. So we come across a word in this episode. Do you remember what that word was? Kluge. Yeah, kluge. Spelled K L U D G E. So it's interesting at the beginning of this episode we didn't have a normal quote accredited to a specific individual like we usually do. No, this, we got Merriam-Webster's. Yeah, so we have <laughs> Kluge. <laughs> the 4,000th edition of Merriam-Webster's. <laughs> so we have the definition, Kluge, noun, disparaging term for genetically unmodified human being. See also Uber. A concise dictionary of slang and euphemism, CY9021. I'm sorry, it wasn't exactly Merriam-Webster's, was it? Yeah, I guess this is like the... uh, This is Urban Dictionary (laughs) of the year 3000. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, of the year 9029. Urban Dictionary for the year 9021. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, All right, so, yeah, okay, let's just get right into that. Kluge, Uber. This isn't really a, a big philosophical quote that we can really try no, to dissect. No, I mean, it just, it, yeah. it just shows you that the you know, slang and name-calling is not going to change mm-hmm. now, past, or future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. And, and here is the interesting thing. It, it, it comes up in in the interactions on the planet. You know, Kluge's, Uber's, you know, there's that, obviously. I find... We haven't really talked about this in any of the previous episodes, even though it has come up before. We even have a disparaging remark being made on the Andromeda. Mm-hmm. Because Becca, in reference to Dylan's plan to go talk to the fan, mm-hmm. she mentions talking to the local bugs. Yep. Yep. Somehow I don't think that the fan are okay with being called <laughs> bugs, just offhandedly like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we still have this environment in which obviously there's warfare and things like that. And so, you know... People get under other people's skin or other under alien skin. Mm-hmm. And so name-calling is just a, a way of life, mm-hmm. apparently. And and even on the Andromeda, there is name-calling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not the nicest term mm-hmm. for the Than that Beck is using there. Like I said, I, don't, I can't imagine they're okay with that. Yeah, well... Maybe I'm, she wouldn't say it in the company of another Than. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's just the name-calling, uh, it happens. Yeah, and... Don't forget that in the very first episode, Under the Night, Dylan and Refractions of Dawn have the interchange where he calls her a bug and she calls him ape. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's I think, right. I think it was ape. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously these are, these are disparaging terms, mm-hmm. but they have a mutual respect for one right. another. Right. And then it says, see also Uber. Yeah. Um, and that would be the, the colloquial for for the humans to call the the Nietzsche. So now so. we know what to call Tyr when we don't want to call him Tyr. Mhm. Yeah. Or we could call him Nemo. Or Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. 
Yeah, somehow that emasculates Tyr, just a little bit to refer to him as Nemo. Mm-hmm. So, Ethan, we've talked about this show. Now comes the part where we uh, discuss uh, what we what we really thought about the show, how we really felt about it. And uh, why don't you go ahead and go first? Okay, yeah, because I've got a little bit to say about this episode. All right. Because I, I really wanted to say something about it in our last discussion that we just had, the okay. mathematics of tears. Okay. Because I was thinking ahead to this episode. Mm-hmm. Because... <clears throat> Here we have a, a description that Becca makes of the crew. Uh, they're present for now, because now is all they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're there for their own reasons. They they have their own uh, hidden agendas mm-hmm. that they're each following. Rev is there so that he can spread the faith of the, the wayest mm-hmm. throughout this new commonwealth that's going to be built. Uh, Harper is there, as Becca puts it, because he's in lust with the ship. Mm-hmm. Either the Andromeda as... The Avatar or the ship, it could be both. I would say yes. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, as as Becca puts it, and I thought it was a great quote, God knows what the purple one is up to. <laughs> she's got her own agenda for mm-hmm. her own reason for being there. But that's the thing. She's sticking by, but it's it's with an ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. So why would Dylan be upset or surprised that Becca has the same thing going on? And I thought this was kind of... Kind of in opposition to what we got in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Because, like Becca said, they're there for now. Mm-hmm. All they have is now. And so everything works for them to be there now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so my thoughts are about this episode, okay, so Rev and Harper and Trance, they're about as close to being committed to Dylan's philosophy or Dylan's cause as anyone can get. And so you... You can think of them as being, yeah, they're they're in his camp, and and it's it's going to take a lot for them to leave, right? So they're pretty stable. Becca and Tyr, not so much. I mean, in the last episode and in the previous episodes, we kind of got the impression that Becca was falling into line, mm-hmm. but now she's she's kind of bowing up, and she's saying, well, I don't know why you're surprised that you know I would try and do my own thing here mm-hmm. because that's why I'm here to do my own thing as long as it benefits me. And that's kind of opposite of what we got in the last episode, The Mathematics of Tears, in which Dylan says, I have a crew I can trust. Mm-hmm. I have a crew I can rely on. And now Becca and, and really, and Tear and, and the others, she's letting him know, yeah, we're here until the money runs out mm-hmm. or until, you know, the going gets rough mm-hmm. or until something better comes along. You know, it's kind of what she's saying mm-hmm. there. And I thought, you know, it, it, we had a crew that was kind of falling into place, and now with this episode, it, it's kind of upset a bit. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, I like it better in this episode with kind of that element of instability being there mm-hmm. and being addressed and being looked at. I like it better than what we got in the last episode, The Mathematics of Tears, where everybody seemed like they were okay, mm-hmm. everything is awesome, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, and and it's it's really not, and that's kind of what the problem that I had with this last episode, the mathematics of tears. And I know I'm blending both of these episodes, and I shouldn't be. We're talking about music mm-hmm. of a distant drum, but I'm showing you that because of what we got in the last episode, I really like music of a distant drum better because it it to me at least puts the crew in the proper light. You know, this is a crew that's they're here for the time being. But who knows? Something mm-hmm. may come along that could break them all up. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's a real possibility. So they're here for the moment, but they're learning to work together and they're doing okay with that. And then I really like it as an episode because uh, it's a great tier episode. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, you know, we've gotten a couple of good tier episodes, but I think this one is really, you know, we're learning the reasons why he acts the way he does. The, uh, and, and we're learning something about what's at his core. You know, take away everything else, peel everything away from the outside, look at his core, and he really is kind of a soft guy. You know, there's a good heart mm-hmm. in there. And so I think this is a good episode for Tyr. Um, but yeah, he can also be ruthless as well, which is what you want out of Tyr, you know, mm-hmm. when, the, when the timing's right. So I, I, overall, I thought this was a great episode, and I really enjoyed watching it. Um, I, I kind of wish we didn't have Mathematics of Tears, at least some of the elements of it ahead of this one mm-hmm. because I think it kind of throws you kind of get two differing viewpoints and, and maybe this comes down to the fact that this was a show that was written by Robert Hewitt Wolf and I think this is really what we're looking at mm-hmm. is now we've kind of yeah we had all of this other stuff going on we had other writers injecting their ideas and their storytelling but now we've come back to center now we're, we're, we're back on point again mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I get with this episode and I like it for that reason you know, you, I had two different uh, possible explanations for what you were just saying. You already hit one of them, and that's the difference in the writers. That's the logical, out-of-universe explanation for, for what happened here. The other being that maybe in Mathematics of Tears, when everything seemed to be really coming together, and then in this episode, what happens happened... That's why Dylan does act so surprised. And Becca is like, why are you so surprised at this? And then, because Dylan is thinking back to the last episode, thinking, I just got done saying that that I can count on all of you. You're, You're a reliable crew. This is a great crew. And now, all of a sudden, I'm getting this. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at it in the timeline, you can understand why... Because Becca asks him, why is this such a surprise to you? That's why. Because yeah. he just got done saying, yeah, everything is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Now, That's mean, a good point. I, yeah. It, it's, it is a lot like a relationship, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, at one moment, things can be clicking along, and it seems like, hey, everything's falling together. And then one thing can happen. And then suddenly the the whole thing seems like a wreck, hmm. and, and it's almost it's not a wreck. I'm not saying that this episode is a wreck by it's any a means. It is a bump. It's a hiccup. It is a hiccup, and I like it for that reason because it is a lot like what you experience in real life for for a certainty. Right. Well, this is a group of people that should not be together. True. But they are. They're figuring out how to make it work. But it's not all just magic and and ponies and lollipops. It's there's 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 problems along the way. Yeah. And so they're they're working through that. You like to see this group of people coming together as a family, but it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen over a season. It happens over however long it takes to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so have you said? Do you like the episode? I haven't said. But I'll say now, if you'd like me to. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I did like this episode. A lot better than I've liked uh, some of the other episodes that we've done. This is this is another one of the things that I keep going back to, the touchstone, that when I first watched this series, 
back in its first airing. Uh, so I guess this episode probably would have been 2001, because it's mm-hmm. pretty late in the yeah. season. Um, this is one that I remember. Okay. This is one that I remember vividly. Um, and I remember it having such an impact on the series, or so I thought at the time, uh, as far as, you know, just having the body of Drago Museveni and everything, or Museveni, depending on who you ask. I was going to say, have we established <laughs> the pronunciation? You know, I've only heard one person... Say Museveni. Museveni. So we're going to go with Museveni. I think we're going to, yeah. Okay, we're gonna so go we're going to settle Museveni. on Museveni. Yeah. All right, now that that's been answered. <laughs> um, you know, there were some other things. A lot of times, amnesia as a plot device, ugh. You know? Um, in this case, however, when it got to the point where the reason for the amnesia, I thought that was brilliant totally original as far as I know. It, it wasn't just... It wasn't a spaceship crash. And he bumped his head. Yeah. And he gets amnesia. But... Okay. I, I will say this. And and, and here again, I'm, I'm it's real hazy going into the second season. So I'm not really sure how often this is going to come up in the episodes that I have seen mm-hmm. or in future episodes. The writers need to be careful. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, we're starting to see the pattern. Nanobots. Mm-hmm. Nanobots are the the one all be all fix all mm-hmm. or the bane <laughs> of people's existence, and it's being it's coming up a lot in, mm-hmm. in usage. But you're right; it it is a great plot device right. in this case, despite the fact that this is the second time we've seen Tyr have amnesia. <laughs> yeah. So the first time he just got knocked unconscious by the Force Lance, but true. <clears throat> but I I think the way they did it this time was much better. Uh, you know, scientifically explaining um, some sort of of outside reason why he had the amnesia. Okay, why would the why would the force lance knocking him out and causing amnesia? Why wouldn't the nanobots fix that over the invasion? Is it because it was an invasion? Is that why they're fixing it? Maybe. I mean, we're going to have to go with that. Yeah. Otherwise, I, we've opened a whole can of worms that's going to continue this conversation on for quite a while. And yeah. No time. That. No time. <laughs> yeah. I think. I think you just stumbled on something, though. That that's a pretty big hole. We're just going to have to jump over it. We're going to have to just. To, <laughs> yeah. It's there. Let's move on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Overall, I really did. I think this was a, a really good episode. Very enjoyable. One other hole. It, it just just because we didn't bring it up earlier, okay. and I have to bring it up now before we conclude this show. All right. Uh, there was one line that Becca mentions in her whole uh, trying to get Dylan to, you know, do some commerce on oh, the side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She does make the observation about the ship. We do learn something about the ship. Mm-hmm. Ten million cubic meters of storage space. Yeah. The ship is roughly what did we establish about thirteen hundred meters long, mm-hmm. and it kind of a live superstructure. Yeah, it's yeah, it's ten million meters square. Seems like an awful big amount of space for a ship that size. Yeah, if you were to do the math, it would be uh, roughly two football two football fields by two football fields by two football fields. Realize we're getting into total nerd discussion, but that's why we do the show. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So. Where is that on the ship? The thought that I had was you break that up amongst all the empty crew quarters. Mm-hmm. You might. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can start to play with that. Yeah. 
But you made an observation when we were looking at a, a playback earlier. Yeah, just in case Dylan didn't know what his car hold, cargo hold looked like, uh, <laughs> Becca went ahead and showed him a schematic Yeah, on the view screen. Yeah. So. And, and I don't think that right there was 10 million square meters of, of cargo space. I don't know. Maybe they pushed it a little bit. Maybe. Anyway. Maybe. Or maybe it was the... Uh, maybe it's a plot hole, or, or maybe we have a, a whole Doctor Who, uh, a TARDIS thing going on Yeah, here. Maybe it's bigger on the inside. There you go. That's, Let's I, go with that. That's what it's, it's got to be. That. Let's go with that. All yeah. right. <laughs> so so you liked the episode? I did. I liked the episode. I liked the episode, too. And really, uh, we need to bring this conversation to, to its conclusion. Uh, Ryan, mm-hmm. it was an honor. <laughs> to discuss this episode with you music of a distant drum mm -hmm. and if you the listener would like to get in touch with us and let us know what you thought of this particular episode you can do so by emailing us at drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com and also on the social media twitter and facebook using the handle andromeda pod on both of those places our home is on podbean that's www.andromedaseries.podbean.com and we're also on the itunes uh yeah you can find us there at the itunes store drive back the night podcast and uh give us some stars if you like uh, listening to the show there we are an age of geek production go check them out at www.ageofgeek.com thanks to our good friend tim kimmerly for again giving us his voice for the opening quote as he has all season long. We would like to invite you to join us back next week as we discuss Harper 